Welcome to Off the Deck. I'm your host, Steve Carrera, and each episode, I sit down with a member of the water polo community to speak with them about what helped make them successful in the world of water polo. In this episode, I sit down with Dan Layson, the head men's coach at UC Davis. If you enjoy the episode, do me a favor, leave a five-star review or share it with your friends. And if you want to support the show, you can go to offthedeckpodcast.com and donate to the program. Thank you very much. Okay, I'm sitting here at Orange Lutheran High School on the phone with the head men's coach of UC Davis, Dan Leeson. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I've been enjoying all your interviews and um, listened to all your podcasts. So thank you very much. Thank you. <clears throat> um, so I wanted to just start uh, with some, with a basic question I've asked all, all the coaches so far, and that is how did you get involved with coaching water polo? Well, I graduated from USC in 1992 and um, kind of hung around the area for a couple years. And I had a good relationship with Jovan. And so he had me coach um, his team in, in summer when he couldn't coach them in like summer nationals and stuff like that. Um, and so it kind of started there. And he, he, he stood up and he was in the stands and he just yelled every instruction that I was supposed to do at me from the stands. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I kind of started coaching from there and, and uh, just a little bit my first experience and but I was really into water polo growing up and, and really, really interested, interested in learning the details of the game. And so maybe it was destiny, but, um, that was my first experience. And then I came back from, uh, living in Barcelona in 2000 where I didn't really have a plan. And as a, as a former athlete without a plan, what you do is you go back and you start coaching, you know, usually. So Jovan, Jovan let me come back and participate as a volunteer coach. And from there, I just kept doing more, getting more experience. I, I worked, uh, in Burbank, uh, in, in the evenings with Ray Rivera. I don't know if you remember Ray Rivera, but I do. he ran a club and yeah. So I worked with him out there in Burbank. And, um, in 2002, I wanted to continue on as an assistant at USC, but they didn't have any money available for me. And so I, I got the job as the head coach of Loyola high school in 2002 and um, that was my first head coaching job. And then I, I really thought that, well, this is going to be it. You know, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to build here and and become a teacher and just kind of do that. Um, but after my first season in the fall of 2002, the assistant coaching position on the United States national team came open. And, uh, you know, Dante was, the fr it was Ratko Rudich coaching and Dante was his first assistant. And then it was Jack Bowen and the, uh, Jack didn't want to continue doing it. And so the position was open and there's really nobody, I was a good candidate. I was young, not married. And, you know, there's nobody around really to take it. And I, I think Jovan helped me with getting that position also clearly. And, um, suddenly I was working for Radko Rudich now, who's the greatest coach in the history of the game, you know, and, um, training with the best players in the country, watching the best players in the world. Suddenly I'm going to world championships in Barcelona where I just, and I kept asking Radko, like, hey, am I going to the Olympics? You know, I just couldn't believe it, really. <laughs> he kept telling me, yes, Danny, you're going to the Olympics. Stop asking me. You know, eventually he had to tell me to stop asking him. Um, but uh, I coached, you know, Adam Wright, Segusman, Brett Ormsby, Tony Azevedo, Ryan Bailey, Brandon Brooks, Merrill Moses, all those guys. And it, it just, that experience changed everything in my life. My point of view helped me to understand just how far people can be pushed. 
Um, I learned a ton about team building, broadened my worldview, like opened my eyes to behind the scenes type of stuff that happens in international water polo. Um, you know, uh, I was surprised to hear that uh, one of the delegates had, had uh, taken the referees out to dinner. Um, and I just, I'd never even realized that that kind of stuff was going on, you know, that the referees were being, you know, it's important how you treat the referees and this kind of stuff and yeah. international games. So just, it's the education, you know, and, um, and I ended up going to the Olympics in 2004 as an assistant coach. And that was just, just an unbelievable experience. And then after that, um, you know, Radko was scheduled to stay for eight years and he, and he, we beat Croatia. I don't know if you remember in 2004, Tony hit a miraculous shot at the buzzer in our opening round game against Croatia and we beat Croatia. And, uh, I think the Croatians, uh, said, Hey, you know, here's a Croatian coach that's beating us. We want this guy back, you know? And, um, so after 2004, he left and, um, I was still an assistant. Uh, and then the, at that point, Guy Baker, took over the men's team. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, I do. Kind of going back. He was years. kind of doing, I mean, at one point he was doing like two or three different teams for Team USA. He coached the junior team and then Robert Lynn came in, I think, around that same time. Is that is that accurate? Well, actually, it was Guy and and then Guy kept me on for a little bit and then he let me go. Um, you know, he wanted to bring his people in, so he fired me and, and um, that was a little bit of a uh, traumatic experience. But then after, you know, that things didn't work out with them. And then the coach after them was Ricardo. Um, and he came in for a little bit and then that ended up not working out. And then Terry Schroeder and Robert came in in 2000, like the very end of the cycle, basically, I think maybe a year out or something, they came in and then they immediately went and, and won a silver medal with the same, basically the same group of players, uh, minus a couple, uh, guys from the, the 2000 to 2004, um, group, um, so in 2005 though, I started, uh, working at the Rose bowl, uh, aquatics club. So I, I got the job as the head water polo coach at Rose bowl. And I just walked on the pool deck there and I thought, okay, this facility, you know, we can, we can really build something here with two fifty meter pools side by side, beautiful location. And like pretty much an under, underperforming, not just not a serious program, you know, yeah. like we could get serious here. Yeah. And so I just started, um, putting my theories to work, copying all the stuff I liked and, and not doing the stuff I didn't and making a lot of mistakes and just, just enjoying um, being a head coach and sort of le- uh, learning how to starting from the bottom, really, you know, from the very basics, 10 and under 12, 14, 16 boys and girls, just teaching, 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 trying to build. And we started with something like 60 or 70 players in 2005. And then at one point we were over 300 when I, when I left there um, we grew the girls program also. I hired Adam Roth and he, he's taking that program and really run with it. And I think, you know, we developed Rose Bowl into a respected competitive club. Um, on both, on both so, ends, guys and, and women. I mean, both teams, uh, both programs seem to be really thriving. Uh, once you took over and I remember running into you, you were, you were coaching a lot of levels. I mean, I remember you were coaching Chancellor Ramirez when he was 14 and under. Is that right? Oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, we could. I mean, I I really liked coaching the 14s. I felt like the 14s were um, the group that you could get to come to practice five days a week. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. because they didn't just have as much going on. You get into high school and and it's still 16 and under. Okay, they're still you know. But when you get to the 18s and the and the seniors and they've got senioritis and 
they know that they've got you in a position where what are you going to do? You know, you're going to, it's hard to get everybody and keep everybody together at 18 and under. So I really like 14s a lot. I thought that was fun. Going to Speedo Cup and all that kind of stuff yeah. was really fun. Um, I also, during that time, I worked as an assistant coach for Jim McMillan at LA Valley College. So I worked at the junior college level two. And then um, in 2011, I got hired by Adam Wright as an assistant and I was still working at Rose Bowl. So having coached, I was his coach in the Olympics and then he hired me as his assistant coach nice. <laughs> in 2011 and, and um, started doing that. And we went to two NC2A finals in the two years that I was with Adam. We lost to SC both times, and, and, and that was during that, that run that SC had of uh, five, five championships in a row, which was just yeah, crazy. Yeah. And then uh, in 2013, I got hired at Davis. And so by the time I was hired at UC Davis, I, I basically coached all levels, boys and girls, from 10 and under, you know, through junior college, uh, assistant coach at Division One top programs in the country, and, and felt, felt ready, felt confident that I was ready to be a head coach. And so I've been here now that I just finished my sixth season and, and still learning so much stuff all the time. And, um, it's been, you know, really educational. Yeah. It seems like the, like the evolution of your coaching almost fits in perfectly with where you landed at UC Davis. Cause you know, you're starting with this like age group, you know, uh, program. And then you're, I mean, obviously bypassing your playing experience and, and helping at USC. I mean, obviously those are huge steps as well, but learning how to like really communicate development going into helping strategize and recruit at, you know, UCLA and, and with the Olympic team and then having your own program, I'm assuming you, you found a way to merge a lot of those things together to help you be successful at Davis. Yeah, that's really the point. I, I feel very strongly for me personally that I, I felt like I, I, you know, I needed to coach the younger levels and learn how to teach the game. In fact, Ratko actually told me that at one point. He's like, you need to start with the young players, you know, and learn how to do that and then just kind of build your way up. And that's kind of how I operate. You know, I don't just jump in at the top and I didn't, you know, some, some, some of the you know, a lot of the marquee players, you know, the players that were Olympians and, and this, they kind of sometimes get these head coaching jobs kind of right out of the gate. And then it's not so easy. That's, you know, that's not my, that's not my style. I was very comfortable starting young, building, 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 and then eventually developing into a division one head coach. Yeah. And so before I go to the next question, I wanted to touch briefly on, you know, something that you said about Racco and, you know, in speaking to other players, um, that were coached by him that really, you know, you mentioned you found out a lot about how much you can push someone and what their limit is, or even going beyond their limit. Is that something that, I mean, because when I spoke, when I spoke to Brett Ormsby, he was like, I mean, he brought things out of me that I didn't even know I was there. And, and it was like, you know, I still see him in my na nightmares basically is what he was telling me. Is that, what your experience was? I mean, watching him. Yeah, I, I it, it's really, really difficult to, to describe just how much that group of players went through from two. Th and I was only with them for two years, 2002 to 2004, 2003, actually. And then through the Olympics. Um, and it, it, you just can't communicate to anybody how, how um, just, how hard the training was and how time consuming and how hard these guys were pushed. Um, and I think 
you know, you got to have a certain personality to do that. Um, and I don't necessarily have the person I don't have Radko's personality, you know? Um, and so I can't, I can't push people as uh, I just, it's not in me to, to just push people so, 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 so far. Um, and you're talking I def- physically and psychologically, or are you talking, you know, or are you just talking like over them, you know, like, could you give me an example just for people who don't know, you know? Well, the schedule alone in itself, the training schedule was, I don't know, you're talking eight, nine hours a day. I mean, and then, you know, everyone, everyone talks about Ratko about the swimming. That's any, that's all people talk about with Rudich is, oh, the players swam so much. And let me tell you something. That's absolutely true. Um, The amount of swimming was crazy. The, the, just the, the grueling is what, is what the training was like. I mean, um, but that's not it about that's 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 the surface of Radko Rudich. That's not the deeper side that people don't see, you know, and the deeper side is, OK, there's a method to this madness. And what he's really a genius at is team building. And he's building the group by way of, you know, going through really, really difficult stuff that tends to bring the group together. And the team building aspect of him is where his true uh, genius lies, in my opinion. Um, and you can't argue with the success. Um, so that was really the thing that stood out to me. Okay, yeah, be, pushing the players hard physically and mentally and stuff, yes, of course. But the method behind it is the important thing. And and some people just observing it from the outside would just say, wow, this guy's he's a madman. That's what they always say about him. He's a madman. Oh, they train so hard, you know. But it's so much deeper than that and so much smarter than that, um, what he was trying to do and what he did with those guys. And, and a lot of the stuff that happened in 2008 was a result of what they went through for those four years uh, from 2000 to 2004. Yeah. And, uh, one last side note before I go to the next question, you, you obviously don't remember this, but I do remember when you were coaching at Loyola high school for a little while, we actually met up in a tournament in the summer. I was coaching at Northwood high school and I think Caleb Hamilton was like a freshman. So I, uh-huh. I, I remember, uh, you coaching that, uh, that high school team, um, for a, for a while. Right. I mean, it was at least a, I mean, at least a season. It was a summer and an, and one season. Okay, yeah, that's that what was I, it. Okay, that's what I thought. So, um, so so I ran into you. I'm sorry, to, I ran into you at the, the famous Northwood uh, summer series, right? Uh, <laughs> actually, I, I still remember. Actually, it was at um, it was at uh, Esperanza High School. Um, it was at Esperanza High School, and the reason I remember is because I, I sort of followed your career after meeting you. Um, you know, just kind of going into Rose Bowl and, oh, this guy took over Rose Bowl and, oh, now this guy's on the net. You know what I mean? So it, it was yeah. just sort of like I kept hearing your name pop up over and over. And, and so I always remember that that first encounter. And, um, you know, I, I remember you being you, – you've mellowed out so much compared to what I remember then. And, I, I mean, hopefully that's not the wrong thing to say, but I just remember – you were like no. this mirror image of of what I saw Jovan early in the in the late nineties and two thousands, really just fired up all the time, you know? And and that's what I that was my first impression. That's what I remember about meeting you. It's so funny that you say that because it's so true. Um and and I, I as a part of my job requirement here at Davis, I have to teach a coaching leadership class once once per year. So in winter quarter I have to teach a class. It's part of our job requirement here. And one thing I always tell my class is that, you know, when you first start coaching, you're going to find out that you, what you're going to do is mimic the coaches that were most influential in your life. 
that's what you're going to do. Cause you don't really know who you are yet and, and what you're about. You have to figure it out, you know? Yeah. And I found myself at Loyola one day I had a, like an epiphany at one certain moment where, where like we're winning the game and then, but, but uh, the, the clock is not running, you know, they're stopping the clock toward the end of the game where we need the clock to run and there was no reason to stop it. And I was just screaming at the, <laughs> the clock operator who happened to be my athletic director, <laughs> you know, and I, and I just told my, I thought to myself, wow, you are, you're just, I mean, you're like Jovan, you're copying Jovan. You got to figure out, that's not, I don't have Jovan's personality. I have my own personality, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so that kind of started the whole process of like figuring out, okay, how am I going to do this? I'm not, I'm not genuine if I'm just copying someone else. I got to figure out who I am. What's my style? What's my deal? Like, I, because you nailed it, like a mirror image of Jovan. I mean, that guy had, had, had inhibited, inhabited my skull, my, my body, you know, with, how he coached and, and I was just passing that on and that, that wasn't really me. So I've, since that time, it's been a journey to figure out what, what I'm about, you know? Yeah. I think that's, I mean, and we'll get back to that part of it, but you know, one of the questions is, you know, what advice would you give? I think that right there is part of it. I mean, yeah. you know, and one of the reasons why everybody who coaches for San Diego Shore sounds like Doug Peabody is because yep. they all, you know, I mean, it's like, he's been so influential to their, development. And I mean, I, I could see that totally, you know, we, you have to come up with your own style and not just that, but a style to communicate what you're trying to get across. You know, it's yelling and screaming isn't for everybody. It's, it's definitely not for me, uh, especially yeah. as I get older. So, um, yeah. so it's gotta be genuine, you know, it's, you gotta, you can't be copying somebody. It's gotta be genuine. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So, you know, now that you're at Davis and you've seen all the different you know, you've been at different programs. I mean, obviously you've been at the, the top, these top level, you know, what they call the big four, UC, USC, you played at USC, um, you, you coach, you help coach at UCLA, you know, and now you're at Davis and really Davis is a, a team that has been knocking on the door and, you know, you, you guys are always really close. I mean, you guys are competitive and you've, you've gotten some really good players. Um, and I'm talking about the whole history of, of, the UC Davis uh, program. Mm -hmm. I remember the WWPA days and I, I'm, I mean, not that those have gone away, but you know, the battles between them and UC, UC San Diego, those things are still happening. Um, yep. What, what is your overall sense or, you know, feeling about the state of college water polo right now in regards to, you know, the equity and, and how teams are doing and, you know, roster sizes and scholarships. I mean, is there anything general that you could think of that sort of addresses the state of water polo right now in college? Such a good question. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a detailed question. Um, I, I think overall, I feel like we're in a good place. I feel like we're in a better place than we have been in the recent past, you know, with the sport cutting and that kind of stuff. I feel like we're past that. Um, and specifically at Davis, I feel tremendous support from our athletic department. I've got an endowed coaching position here at Davis. It's, it's the only endowed position at UC Davis. Wow. And, and our program was actually cut in the, uh, in the aughts, you know, like, and I think it was 2007 or something like that. It was actually cut and we had to fundraise to bring it back just like UCLA did in 1993 or two or something like that. Um, and right now we have tremendous support from people willing to donate money to our program. And, and a huge part of what we have to do is fundraising and that that's with every program. So at Davis, we feel, I feel, you know, really good overall. I think the parity is very slightly better uh, for the most part. 
And honestly, I feel it's because of the GC, the, the advent of the GCC, which which has its you know other side to it. But what it has done is it allows uh, has allowed a, a five through nine, like a, a perennial five through nine team, to actually get to the tournament. Yeah. And then once you're in the tournament, you know what they say is anything can happen. So upsets can happen and stuff like that. Um, but really, it's still a four team show. And and to be honest, that part of, to me is a little bit boring. Yeah. Um, and you and Abdu talked about that, and everybody talks about it. Only four teams have won the, you know, besides Pepperdine and Irvine, the only four teams have won it in the last 30 years. And and um, that that just seems to me like, okay, you know, and I can see, I know that if the top four coaches listen to this, their tempers are going to be rising, you know, because <laughs> I, I've got no disrespect whatsoever. I respect what they do, yeah. how hard they work. The universities they work for are amazing. I mean, you can't blame anyone for wanting to go to Cal, Stanford, SC, or UCLA, you know. But to have a sport where only four teams have a real shot to win it is is just sad. I mean, I, I'd like to see efforts made, you know, yeah. to, to increase parity a little bit. Because I've, I've worked at UCLA, and I've worked at SC. I'm like the one guy who crossed the party lines, you know, and I've worked at both universities. And... I know when I was at USC, coaches were complaining about the advantages that UCLA has. You know, when I was at UCLA, coaches were complaining about the advantages that SC has. Like we're all looking at each other and saying, "Oh, they have this, we don't have that. They've got this and that." You know, but now that I'm at Davis, I can tell you this: it's not a fair, it's not a level playing field to say the least. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and I think if we can, if there was a way to make efforts. To increase parity, that would be good for the sport. One one example I can give you is how you count scholarships, right? So that the UC uh, uh, favors people from the state of California. So if you're from California, education is cheaper, right? Anywhere out of state, the cost is basically double. Um, and and so if you receive a like a, a, a equivalency scholarship amount, that means I receive the equivalent of 4.25 scholarships, which is in the neighborhood of $120,000, right? If I want to give a full ride to a player, that costs me $50,000. Well, right there, I'm close to 50% of my money gone for one player, right? And for other out of, schools, for out even, of state, you're saying? For, yes, for out of okay, state. Okay. But even even within the UC system, different UCs calculate scholarships in a different way. At other schools, full ride is full ride. All accounts from your scholarship is one. Right. It, it just it doesn't matter that it's twice the money or not, because the athletic department picks up that the cost, whatever it is, if it's twenty five or fifty. Right. So if it doesn't cost you that much, then it that and it costs us double, that makes it hard for us. You know, and then if you talk about private universities that have more creative ways to um, provide financial aid. Right. Then the, the scholarship thing across the board is not exactly uh, level, right. Um, which, which makes it hard. And I mean, so like one example, just to sort of like bring it down for the people who don't, cause I understand, you know, because I coached at Concordia. So I, I get the scholarships and how it counts against, and, and we had a different system there, but you know, so when I went to Queens, my first year I was an out of state student. So my scholarship had to basically be double what it was going to be for an in state student counting towards more, which clearly seems not right. I mean, it doesn't, that to me doesn't make sense, but, um, and so 
the, the creative scholarship thing for the private and even public, I would assume, is like you can come up with like the Steve Carrera, you know, scholarship. <laughs> and if right. someone applies for that scholarship and they happen to be John Mann <laughs> and they happen to get it, then yeah. they're, they don't count towards your scholarship count. Is that right? Um, it's not. It's not that. Although there are like specialized um, scholarships, and at, at the UC, you, there is very little leeway with that. Okay. Um, you can receive financial aid, and you can receive scholarship. But we don't have like private specific scholarships in the UC. Private universities do. They have the, you know, some specialized scholarships. What I'm referring to more is if we're talking percentages. So at one school, if if I if I do my scholarships in dollar amounts, for example, like I'm giving this guy fifty thousand dollars, and at another school. You just talk about percentages. So I'm giving this guy 100%. Gotcha. So you know what I mean? It's not a dollar amount. So the, the athletic department just picks up whether it's – if it's 100%, they just pay it, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. For me, it costs me half, almost half my money. So it makes it hard. And, and at another school, I've got only 100%. I've used 100%. That means I have four more or three more scholarships. And at Davis, I don't have three more. I've got maybe you know two or yeah, less so- than two because – and so like uh, going back to my Concordia example, we were on percentage. So right. if I – basically my athletic director said 20 – everybody on your team can get 25% scholarship if you just spread it across the board or 15% right. scholarship. But then everybody has to pay the remaining amount. So if I gave someone a full ride, I just had to find someone that was going to get less – or are going to pay full to balance it out. Or I'd have to find two people yeah. that were going to pay full to balance out that 100%. I didn't realize yeah. that happened in, at, at Division One schools. I, I thought well, I it was it four and a half. It, like, I thought it was four scholarships or whatever across the board. And, and, it, 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 overall, the number is, is four and a half. Okay? okay, but what I'm saying is that, like, if, it depends if you calculate it in percentage or you calculate it in yeah. dollar amount, yeah. right? Yeah. So if you calculate into percentage, that's just one. If you calculate in dollar amounts, it's fifty thousand, which is actually almost two. Yeah, that, right. That doesn't seem fair at all. That's no, it's it's, but that's dependent on your your athletic department's budget, and there's different budgets. Yeah. <laughs> some sports bring in a lot of money at some schools, you know, and that helps with it. Other sports don't have it. So, so if you could like, um, if you could level out the sport of water polo. You know, with that in mind, what would be like a a good like two or three line pitch that you would give to like every water polo AD, you know, to make it fair? What what would you say to them? Well, you'd have to say something to the effect of uh, like we all have to calculate our scholarship amounts in the same way. It's either percentage or it's dollar amount, and you cannot and 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 the scholarship values are are the same for every school, right? So like, for example, between us and UCLA. We all, we all have to either use dollar amount or percentage, and we have to calculate it in the same way so that one scholarship doesn't cost me 50000 and for them it's only one because they're calculating it in terms of percentage, 100%, right? Yeah. Mine is dollars, theirs is percent. So it, it, I don't really know. I'm not good at making these solutions. I only know that this is complicated how it works, you know? Yeah, no, I mean that that, um, that definitely makes sense because – in in order to get players to think outside of the big four box, you yeah. either have to sell them on the fact that, look, I mean, you're going to get a great degree from this institution. 
you know, we're, we're looking 10 years into the future, how everything's going to work out. Um, and you got to take a chance on really helping to build a program and create something that's never happened before as opposed mm-hmm. to, and, and usually that takes money. You know what I mean? Like usually you have to pay a little bit a higher premium for that, yep. that really, really special player. Um, otherwise why, why would they, you know? So yep. I think that becomes the like sort of the issue. And I mean, would you say that even though, even though you don't, even though you're not like on the same playing field, you're still extremely, I mean, obviously you're still extremely competitive. You know, you're, you're able to, to compete with, you have a really tough schedule. You're in all the big tournaments. I mean, yeah. do you feel like you're like one, two players away? Or do you think, feel like you're three players off the bench away? Because I mean, usually it's like a depth issue that I've seen more than anything else. Like, are, I mean, do you feel like you're getting closer? I think I think we're getting closer, and I'm not. I'm I, honest. I, I want to make this clear that I'm not sitting here trying to make excuses, and and to com- I mean, I'm just talking about the, the state of the game. I'm not making excuses for anything. I always course, say, you know, we can we can do it. Um, maybe we can't do it nine out of ten times, but we can do it one out of ten times. It can happen, and it will happen. And I have faith and hope. And but um, in terms of like, if you're looking at like a, you know, usually what they say is like the the second line of six players from like the top universities would all start, you know, at at a at a lower level or a lower ranked school, you know, like a Davis. Like all of those guys that are kind of sitting on the bench, not really playing that much, could probably play quite a few minutes at at Davis and at other schools. You know, I don't know how many players away I am. Um, it's just finding the right combination, and I'm still learning about what we got to do. And I'm still trying to attract. Um, and that's where recruiting comes in. We have to be so smart about recruiting. Uh, we can talk about that a little bit later. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to touch on a couple other things about college water polo. A lot of, there's a lot of discussion about the amount of foreign players that teams have, um, and questions about whether there should be a limit on foreign players. And that's a really tough one too, because, well, we can all say, yeah, we should do that. They do it in Europe, right? You only allow two foreigners on European teams and they do that so that they, they develop the, 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 the native players, right. For the, and they're doing them a service by developing them and preparing for them for the national team. But here we have universities who sold like, um, St. Francis, right. They have an international, I think it's like their, their statement is supporting international education. Right. So if we did a limit on foreign players, then suddenly you lose St. Francis. Yeah. Maybe. Right. And now we're not in a position where we can be saying, okay, we can lose this program and it's not a problem. We're not in that. We're barely hanging on, you know, with the number of schools that we have for an NC2A championship. Um, yeah, Concordia so was the same question. way. Yeah, Concordia was yeah. the same way. Without, without our international players when I was there, we wouldn't have a, a team that was even close to competitive. I mean, it, it, you know, the, the teams like St. Francis, Queens when I was there, you know, even UMass when they were around, like mm-hmm. – they, those programs desperately need foreign players because it's hard to convince Southern California kids to go out there. You know what I mean? So, absolutely. You know, I, I, I think people see that in a very narrow view. Uh, you know, regarding only two or three universities. You know, like my kid didn't get in yeah. here or didn't get a scholarship from this school because of yeah. foreign guys there. But hey, I mean, yeah. there's other opportunities. You know, you're yeah. Um, it's such a tough question. 
And but then then you see teams that have seven, eight foreigners on the team, and then you think, well, is that too many? Or you know what? I I don't know. It's it's really hard. Um, Do you have international students on your yeah, team? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we fall. Look, we want to win. Um, we want to be competitive. I don't want to just lose. And and our formula, and it's not a secret. It's it's a formula at a lot of the schools that are not in the top four. Is like, look, I'm going to try to get the best domestic recruits that I can, and I'm going to work hard at that. And I got to develop these guys, but I'm going to try to go abroad and get some impact players that can help out right away. And um, try to balance out the, the equation with that. If you look at a team like Pacific, right, James has done a great job of, of doing that. Um, and he's had great success with it because he's brought really, really strong foreign players. And that's kind of, that's kind of the formula that we see from our perspective as, okay, here's how we're going to survive with this, is that we've got to do the best we can domestically, but we also have to do a good job with some international players to help bring the level up, of, overall level of our team up, right? And that's kind of some marquee guys. So, yeah. And that goes back to the earlier point about scholarships, because you have to, it's like, you have to spend your money wisely. And if you're, if you are giving a full ride to a domestic player, they better be, you know, one of the top three or four recruits in the country overall. Like, you know, if you can get, you know, I'm just throwing a name of my former player of mine, if you can get Hunnis Dalbay or, you know, Ash Moulton, yeah, great. I mean, okay, I'll give you as much money as you need, but the hard part is getting a player like that to to get to and I'm not specifically just talking about UC Davis, but outside of the top 4, I think is really it's it's better to oh, just yeah. generalize it as outside the top 4 because I know sure. you've attracted really good players. Um and that that's not really the the main issue, but I think as a sport in general, that's like a big wall, you know. So uh, Absolutely. Well, uh, got to spend your money wisely and stuff. So it's just really hard to find that balance, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, moving on to the to the next question, um, I wanted to ask you because you've coached so many different levels. Um, how many championships have you been involved with, and which ones like really stand out in your mind? Um, I've been involved in quite a few championships. I mean, uh, you know. I've been involved in championship games and I've had both positive and negative experiences in, 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 in them. Um, when I was working as a volunteer at USC in 2001, I think it was 2000 or 2001, we were in the final four and we actually lost to San Diego in the first round at Pepperdine. I don't know if you remember when that happened. I've ha- um, I do remember that. And I've actually mentioned it a, a couple of times in some interviews that I haven't released yet. So by this time, maybe they'll be released, but UCSD uh-huh. was the first school outside of that top four to get into the final game, and they played UCLA. Uh, Adam Wright's what would have been his senior year um, yep. in the final. I, I, I'm glad that you brought that up. And he had to sit out that game because of some paperwork issues and stuff. Yep, I remember that. Uh, but they were still a super, super strong team. But looking back, and, and now that I coach in the WWP, I realize you know that must have been such a thrill for Denny Harper and his team. Um, to have that upset. I mean, that's just, that's got to be a special moment for them. What do you remember so about special? that game? That what, what, what do you think from your perspective, you know, looking back so many years later, what happened to USC in that game? 
I don't remember the game that well. I, I can what I remember about that season and, and that time at USC was that um, there was a lot of chemistry issues going on. There was a lot of personnel problems um, with that particular group. You know, just the personnel that was there. They just didn't really um, gel. And I remember Jovan struggling, just struggling with certain players, um, just over and over. And and just I think that game is sort of the end result of all of the difficulties that we were having all season long. Um, and San Diego had a great team um, in in that time too. So, but it was that particular era of USC was not um, typical of what you would see now. Mm-hmm. I would say yeah. with the, like the cohesiveness that they have and the personnel that they have, it was, it was hard, really, really hard. Yeah. Usually that those things get heightened at the most stressful moments. You know what I mean? The lack of team chemistry really shows its ugly face in like a stressful situation, you know? So absolutely. Um, yeah. But, but anyway, also, continue with your, uh, with the championships and stuff. So I've been in uh, several U S club championship games with Rose Bowl as a, as a club coach. And those were always, um, it was exciting. You know, those were our first, like getting to the championship games and it took years to get there. And we won an 18 and under us club championships, which was great. Um, I lost in the finals at 16 and under. Um, and, and we never actually made it to a junior Olympics championship game. We got very close. We got to the semis a bunch of times, but we never made a JO championship, which is disappointing. Uh, we wanted to get one of those yeah. as a, as a coach at UCLA, I, the finals both years I was there and we lost to USC both times like I said earlier when they were on their run of five in a row and that was super educational those USC teams in that era were unbelievably strong with Joel Dennerly in the cage and Davey and all those other players that they had they were Nikola Vavich was just unbelievable and really really strong team so that was super educational and very very hard um and then I, as, the, as the coach of Davis, I've been in the WWPA championship game five out of the six seasons I've been here, and we, have, we won two in uh, 2016 and 2017. And I really feel like you, you learn a lot from participating in championship games, and they're just not easy to win. And, and you know sometimes you have to learn how to lose before you can win, and I think that was definitely our case with Davis, you know, coming from a place where we hadn't won in 20 years and Lost a couple really hard ones, but then we kind of figured out how to how to get it done, and we got it done two years in a row. And then this year we 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 lost to San Diego again, which was really very very educational and and um, difficult. Yeah, I remember running into you at US oh, UCLA. Sorry, and, and I think you guys had lost in 2015. I can't remember who you who you had lost to, but probably UC San Diego. That would have been. Um. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Definitely. And. Um, you know, I just remember you were, I can't remember the game. I, I don't remember, but it was a close one, obviously. And I remember you sort of having the attitude of like, you know, it was a really good game. It was really close, but it's sort of back to work. But you're still at the championship game. You're still, I mean, you know, you're there with your, with what looked like a notebook. I mean, are you just constantly searching and looking and, and trying to learn? Like, are you still absorbing as much as you possibly can um, and bringing it to your team year in and year out? Is that sort of like your mentality right now? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm trying to learn um, all the time. Um, I feel like if you, if you feel like you know it all, you, then you, you're, you're setting yourself up for failure. So I'm, I'm constantly trying to learn more, 
constantly tried to figure out what the keys, the absolute keys are to this whole thing, you know, keys to everything, keys to recruiting, player, player development, player evaluation, tactics. Like there's so much to learn, motivation, um, culture building and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I try to read as much as I can. I love talking to other coaches about stuff, asking them questions. I talk to coaches all the time and I take a lot of notes and I really, I, I, I really enjoy learning about stuff. And so I'm, I'm trying to keep learning and getting better at this, at this thing. And it's, it's um, not always easy, you know, but it's super valuable. And sometimes losing is the most educational thing that can happen. Yeah. And so do you see, you know, watching so many different players from all over the world, really, and, and so many different age groups, do you see some similarities in like just spectacular players um, that are sort of fit across the board? Is there one or two things that you see that you just identify and go, I need that? Um, that's such a hard question. I think the book actually that kind of summed it up the best for me that I read recently was this book called Grit by Angela Duckworth. I don't know if you've read that book. I actually have heard that book, heard of that book. Yeah. That one is the one that kind of, that it seemed like it boiled it down really to kind of what it's all about. You know, like, like grit is, you know, just being gritty and persistent and stuff is more important than talent. But, um, I think that for the different characteristics um, enable different types of people to be successful. And I know that you, I heard you and John Abdu talking about, uh, you know, different characteristics of players and size and stuff like that. Um, and, and so like the way I look at it is, is that if you have an X, Y graph and on the, on the Y axis, you have like uh, the ability level. And on the X axis, you have uh, uh, the characteristics of the players that you're looking for, like, um, uh, competitive drive, grit, speed, athletic ability, size, strength, intelligence—all of these things listed on the on the horizontal axis. And then, but they're all interrelated, right? So that if one of them goes down, the other ones need to go up. You know, mm-hmm. so it has to push the others up. For example, like the most common one is size, right? Everybody says, "Oh, we only recruit big players, or only big players can exist in water polo," and that's just not true. It's not a true statement. But if you're small, Okay, if that characteristic has gone down on your little graph there, then the other ones need to go up, right? So you need to be extra gritty. You need to be mean, tough, fast, athletically gifted, quick, smart, something to make up for your lack of size. Yeah. Um, and you got to be able to put the work in that's required to get those other skills up to that level. And a lot of people are just flat out not willing to do the work that is required, you know, and but you can exist. Uh, there's been millions of examples. Tony Azevedo is not a big player. Yeah. He's not tall. He's amazing. You know, like he was incredible. Um, so I, it's hard to say which characteristic is, is really the one, you know, and that's, that's one of the things that we're trying to look at. I, I don't know what it is. Yeah. I mean, if you knew, first of all, you wouldn't tell because another coaches would be looking for it. But number two, <laughs> I mean, it, it would, you wouldn't have to leave your office to recruit if you knew what that one specific skill was. I mean, it, it, there's so many different factors involved with a with a good player, but what's what's interesting about the grit thing is, you know, you see that across so many different things. It's not just water polo. I mean, you see it in the business world. You see it in coaching. You know, the, the person who's willing to grind through the really really tough times usually is going to come yep. out on top. And I tell my players all the time the same thing: you better have one spectacular thing if you want to play at the collegiate level, you know, one thing that, that sets you apart. Okay. You're not that big. 
you're a great shooter and a great passer. Okay, that that might be enough, you know. So mm-hmm. there's there's always got to be at least something that that's eye catching if you want to play at a top level university. Absolutely, that's that's the key, you know. And and then the other thing is just okay. Well, how hard are you willing to work to to get this? You know, if you want it bad enough, you can get it. That's a fact. In this country, in this game, in this world, if you want it bad enough, if you're willing to put the work in, you'll get it. It's just how much work. <laughs> and that depends on every, every player is different, you know. Some yeah. people just don't have the natural athletic. they got to outwork somebody. And, and I think that's the grit. The, the, the thing about grit is that it, it really takes that into account, you know. And, and grittiness can get you a long way. Some of the players that, that made the 2004 Olympic Games were there by – sheerly by attrition that they just were willing to do this training that Radko was putting them through and others were not. There were some talented guys that did not make that team. You know, there's a guy like Omar. Omar Amr was studying medical school at Harvard and doing the training with us. Um, I don't know how he did it. That's crazy. Um, but he was a driven guy, a gritty guy that just, he just worked and he made it. Yeah. You know? So, um, I really think that's important. And that book was really kind of like, ah, oh, this is good because this kind of sums it up, you know? Yeah. And, you know, going back to one, you know, point that you made really early on about your contract at Davis in terms of teaching, that must be really, I mean, that, that almost sounds like it should be a requirement, you know, like for a lot of coaches <laughs> to be able to like articulate some of the things that you're feeling in your gut. It's got to really help you reinforce some of the things that, that have helped you um, to be successful, just to keep reiterating. I think it's, yeah, I think it's, I think it's great. And, and I'll tell you this, you know, not every coach at Davis likes the, the fact that they have to teach. Some people are not into it, you know, and I'm, I'm into it. I enjoy teaching and I enjoy learning. And these kids are smart and they teach me stuff every single class. And you're right, you know, to go over and to be able to articulate leadership and what leadership is and how to communicate and what's good communication different types of communication, what's different types of motivation and to talk to it and have to stand up in front of a group and talk about it is it's a little unnerving to be honest, because they just go, Hey, part of your contract is you got to teach a a coaching leadership class and you got to have a syllabus and, and uh, you know, you're going to have students that are coming in looking at you for instruction. It's like, wait, wait a minute. (laughs) I have to answer questions. (laughs) Yeah. Like, do you have any materials? Nope. (laughs) Get going. Like, okay, well, um, I, I love that aspect of it. Winter quarter is great. We're, we're in eight hour weeks, you know, so we're not training as much and it gives, and that's when my class is. So every Tuesdays we get together, I have to prepare a lecture about leadership and talk about leadership. And, and, um, I think it's very helpful to me. Uh, and I hope it's helpful to the students. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's I, great. I mean, yeah, I think that's amazing. Um, so, I mean, we kind of touched on what you're looking for for at, at Davis. I mean, it sounds to me like, and of course you could fill in the gaps, but it sounds to me like you're looking for the diamond in the rough, you know, that, that, that guy who maybe was overlooked a little bit, who's just going to turn out to be one of those spectacular players, as long as they're, you know, have the grit and the mindset to really come in and want to, want to do something very special at Davis. I think what I'm trying, what I'm, what I'm finding out is that I kind of want to find players that were, that were like I was, to be honest. You know, I, I was a hardworking player. I, I came up and, and didn't have a lot of, I didn't play on the junior team. I didn't have a lot of accolades coming out of high school. And, and I had a, a, 
good college career and I was able to go on and play a little bit for the national team. And I, and I realized my dream of playing uh, for a Spanish club team for three years. And I lived in Barcelona, you know, like, and I worked to get there. I worked hard. And so I, I like players that are a little bit under the radar that are willing to just come in and go to work and love the idea of being at Davis, being in the program and saying, let's go, let's try to do something here. That's spectacular that people didn't expect. Um, and those are the kind of people I'm looking for. Now, I, I, you never know, you know, because everybody's playing the recruiting game and these, these kids, everybody's smart. Everybody keeps their cards close to the vest. Everybody says the things that you want to hear, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. You're going to, you're going to ask a, a recruit, Hey, are you a hard worker? Nope. I hate working hard. <laughs> you know, yeah. they're never going to say that. Yeah. So that's really the, you know, and watching the guys play and kind of vetting them and talking to their coaches and trying to find people that can really blossom in college and that are excited about the idea of coming to Davis, which is such a unique location in the world of college water polo. Um, that it's a special place, you know, and, and people don't, people don't really know about it, but it's, you know, if you're talking about college water polo and the schools that, it, that are, you know, in the top 12 or whatever, top 20, they're all basically located in cities, you know, except yeah. for Santa Barbara, which is out on the beach and they have their little niche and they've got the beach thing. So that's really attractive to some people, but most of them, most schools are right in the city, you know, and we're not, we're out in the, we're a little bit more rural. We're, our, our campus is huge. You know, it's like 6,000 acres. We've got hundreds, uh, over a hundred majors of different things, beer and brewing, viticulture, enology, uh, you know, uh, plant science, veterinary schools, number one in the world. So we're, we're different yeah. and we have a working dairy on campus, you know, like who has that? We're the only school that has that. We, we were like a small college town that you'd find maybe in the Midwest or something like that, you know, where you ride your bike everywhere. So, but, but that doesn't appeal to everyone. And some people it really strongly appeals to some people come here and go, Oh, wow, this is cool. I want to do this. You know, other people go, well, there's no beach. So I'm out. Yeah. You know, Yeah. Yeah. but I need to find people who are super excited about being here, who, who are just ready to go to work. So if there's something that you could change in the world of water polo, what would that be? That could be anything. Referee, a, rules, ball color, <laughs> whatever, whatever you want. I, I just think that question is going to be one that about maybe like three or four days from now, I'm going to think of what I should have said, yeah. you know, which happens to me quite a bit. Um, but one of the things that jumps out it, to me is kind of the spirit of cooperation that we have amongst coaches and, and referees and, and our whole little world, our little insular world of water polo, where we seem to be just plagued by infighting all the time and kind of jealousy and this like sniping at each other. And we can't really seem to find a way to kind of cooperate, you know, for the greater good. It seems like we're always fighting with each other, even in coaches meetings. I mean, you get a bunch of coaches together and it just seems like no one can agree. And, and it's always, it's just not, a cooperative environment where we're all kind of pointed in the same direction saying, let's, you know, everybody has their own agenda. The top four have their agenda. The five through 12 have their agenda and the East coast is thinking about them. And I don't know. I don't feel like we, we kind of really cooperate as much as, as we could. And I just don't know how to make that happen. I really don't. Yeah. But it's kind of disappointing when we, we can't agree on something for the greater good of the sport, you know? 
Yeah, I think you see that even more so in the at the age group club level too. A lot oh my of God. infighting and sniping and you know, like you know, there's no first off, there's no like protection for clubs, there's no protection for like the players that you have, but then again, yep. you don't want them to be players that if they're not happy, they should be able to go wherever they want and there should be more than one or two choices in one area. I mean, there's just so many different things. It's like you say hi to coaches on the pool deck and you don't know what they're thinking or saying under their breath. You know, it's, it's like, um, it's, it's a tough thing. And I think one of the, one of the benefits of having conversations like this and putting it out there for other people to hear is that you hear like the heart of the coaches when they're talking, it's like, I'm here because I love the sport of water polo. I'm here because it gave me so much and I'm just trying to pass that on and like, yeah, I, I wish people would be more open to that. You know, do you know that the, the do you know the um, the scholarship rules that baseball the baseball coaches implemented and and made an NC two A rule? Are you are you aware of this? No, no, no. So the baseball coaches got together and decided that in order to increase parity a little bit for the good of the sport, we're gonna they were gonna enact these rules. One of which is you you are not allowed to give any player less than twenty five percent scholarship. Okay. And that is to inhibit coaches from just giving everybody books so they can sign a letter of intent and just signing everybody for, an, for 800 bucks, you know? Yeah. So with, when you have to give somebody 25%, then you go, then you have to make a decision about this player, you know, like, whoa, do I really want to give him 25% or, or not? And I need to study a little bit more and I need to, and I need to get out there and see them and make more calls. And so, and not just kind of sit back and hear about some guy at the last minute and go, oh, sure, we'll give you books. Come on, to, you know, come to Stanford. Not Stanford as much because of the academics, but yeah. come to SC, you know. We'll pick you up right at the last minute while some other school has been recruiting that player for uh, close to a year, you know. Yeah. Um, and the other thing they did is that you can't give it to more than 25 players. Now, baseball rosters are, are really long. They're, they're, they're like up to 40 players or more, right? And you can't give scholarship money to more than 25 players. So you can't just throw money around like it's nothing um, and this was an, this was an effort by those guys to say, Hey, we got to stop doing this. You know, we got to level the playing field just slightly, just a little bit. Uh, and I thought that was neat that they came to an agreement as coaches. Um, and we seem to not be able to do stuff like that. And I wish, I wish we could. Yeah, no, that's a really, that's a really insight, especially with a sport like baseball where, I mean, it's massive. I mean, there's so many programs that have baseball teams. Yeah. If they can come up with something, how could, 45 or 50 or whatever it is men's programs and women's programs not come up with some sort of agreement yeah. you know that, that does seem um something that could be easily solved but uh i know you, yeah, what you i'm sorry go ahead i'm sorry well what you see in baseball is a bunch of different teams winning the championship every year you don't see one team winning it all the time yeah you know and across the board, sports have done made effort in the, in the nfl what about the salary cap you know that's done in baseball they, they make these efforts because it's more interesting when people have an opportunity, you know? Yeah. I mean, when you can see like a school like, you know, Stanford win the national championship in baseball and then the next year Cal State Fullerton wins, you know, I mean, like, of I think I do think that's a good thing. I mean, it would be it would be great if the last five championships were won by five different schools in water polo. Uh, I mean, yeah. then all of a sudden you are looking at the that quote unquote blue chip recruit and they're going like, I have just as good a chance if I go here than if I go here. And you know what? I really want to take this specific major like 
brewing beer. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. But I, I, I maybe I don't want to go there because of this, you know, because of the water polo thing or or whatever. So I have to go to USC to win a national championship. Like, you know, I, I mean, I think we're so close to breaking that barrier. You know, I, I hope in the next two or three years that we're able to. I think it would be phenomenal for the for the sport, and it just brings in more people, more viewers, which is which yep. is always helpful. Yep, absolutely. So uh, I know we're we're a little bit pressed for time here. Um, so I wanted to ask you two more questions, if I could. Um, sure. Who have been your biggest uh, mentors and influences uh, in coaching in your coaching career? I'd have to start with my parents, um, who were both teachers. And I think that teaching and a love for instruction and watching people learn and learning actually is, is genetic. And they pass that on to me. And uh, I really love new, learning new things myself. And I, I love watching people learn. Um, and that kind of led me toward teaching. Um, another coach who was a coach who was super, super influential is Jim Sprague, my high school coach. Um, he was at Sunny Hills High School and Fullerton where I happened to grow up and, and he was, you know, he didn't really appreciate the things that he did for us back then, but he taught us everything. I mean, he dedicated his life to us. He, um, he just, he ran such a good program and at a local public high school, that's not always the case, right? Had I grown up in other school district, the experience could have been completely different and that probably would have changed everything. So I'm just so lucky to have him. And I tried to tell him that when he got inducted in the U S water polo hall of fame and he kind of just brushed it off. And I'm like, no, no, you really need to understand how important you were, you were, you know? And he's just kind of like, yeah, well, you know, so, <laughs> he, that's just kind of how he is. Yeah. Um, Jovan Vavich is another super influential mentor. He's just so knowledgeable and, and his drive and his work ethic is just almost unmatched. Uh, he came in as a, in his first year, uh, as a head coach when I was a senior and, uh, he just changed everything in our program and, um, taught me a lot. He really called me out on some of my behavior too, which was so important. And I, and I worked really, really hard for him because I knew that he knew what he, what he was doing and he, um, and I respected him greatly. And he also helped me as, as a coach when I worked for him. Uh, he cut me right down to size one time in Hawaii and I'll always remember that. And, uh, it wasn't pleasant, but it was, super helpful. My, my, um, club coach in, in Barcelona at Barcelona, his name is Kim Colette. He's, he's still a good friend of mine. He taught me a lot about what it's like to train in a professional way, you know, like being part of a league that lasts eight months where you play on every Saturday night and kind of just repeating the same training over and over. And just, we swam so much. I'd never swam as much in my life as I did when I played in Spain. And, um, just, learn by doing like by learn by playing, learn by training hard, um, by the experience, you know, and, and really valuable, uh, learned a lot of great exercises from him and stuff like that. Racco Rudich. I mean, you can't, can't really describe what this guy did for me. I mean, I, I, we had a good relationship. We were friends, you know, but I was, I was the young coach and I was just hanging on every word he said. I took detailed notes of every team meeting we have, I, I still have the books that are just absolutely filled with every workout and every meeting, everything that he said, he was so influential and his personality was so strong. He's another guy that just kind of went, it just kind of occupied your soul the way he it just affects you. And, and anyone who was part of that will tell you any of those players, arms, be right. Bobby and Moses powers, Bailey, 
Brandon Brooks, Segusman, all of them. And they didn't, they, and we didn't necessarily like it all the time at that time, but we realized later what was going on. And he was just such a smart leader and a smart person and a great planner, great motivator, great team builder, game tactician. And another thing was that he was a really, really hard worker. Uh, and he worked so hard to plan all of the national team programs that were going on at that time, the premier league, the travel, everything was just, just incredible. Um, Adam Wright was also, he's been a, an influential coach. I mean, just working with him and seeing how hard he worked and the planning, the number of hours that he put in the intensity, attention to detail, travel plans, training plans, workout plans, just so good on drills. Like the fundamental skills drills that he has are just so good. Um, and, uh, but you know what, not, not that fun to work for sometimes, (laughs) (laughs) but I took a lot from that, that I still use, I use today. And I also have a lot of negative experiences from coaches that have been influential and I won't mention them here, but the negative experiences can be just as valuable, even more so I think. Yeah. I mean, that's a really like robust list from one end of the spectrum really to the other. You know, and, and I think it's it's really cool to hear. I mean, someone like Sprague is still around. Uh, you see him videotaping games for Carlson and for and for coaches and and working on stuff. And and just really quickly, was he doing video stuff with you guys when you were playing? Yeah, we watched a ton of film, ton. And in th- those days, it was on VHS tapes, you know. And he was revolutionary in that way. I'm glad you brought that up because I. I neglected to mention that he was revolutionary in the use of videotape and we watched so much film together. And that was for me as a visual, you know, guy that, that was, it was great. So helpful. That's awesome. Um, so what advice taking all that knowledge, what advice would you give to a young coach, uh, starting out now or just starting to like really get, you know, starting to build a program, trying to get it to the next level. There's so many different stages of coaching, but what would you tell a, a young coach? I would, I would say, you know, try to surround yourself with other good coaches by either working for them or going to clinics or just, just getting around people who are successful coaches uh, and surrounding yourself by, with them and listening carefully and watching very carefully how they operate and um, trying to take what you can from them. I would say that you should dedicate yourself to learning and keeping an open mind and, and not be afraid to admit errors that you're going to make. You're going to make a lot of errors. Um, another thing I would say is read books about leadership and read books about coaching, read, read, (laughs) you know, like there's a lot of material out there. And every time I read a book, I feel like I get better in some way as a coach, even now, you know, just a different way of saying the same thing or, or just a new take on something or, or some, some more modern form of leadership or, um, you got to study your craft. You know, even John Wooden says you got to read from from the, the books, right? The good book too. Like, but you, you, you got to read. Yeah. And, um, I would say study the game closely and learn how to teach it the right way. Learn how to teach the fundamental skills, talk to the best coaches, reach out to them. Most of the time they're willing to help, you know, like they'll let you sit in on a practice, observe, maybe ask some questions. And, and most, most successful coaches like helping young coaches. They, they were young coaches at one point. They had people that helped them out. Also, a lot of times we have big egos, <laughs> so we like to talk about what we're doing, you know, yeah. and it's, and, and ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask. And I, I feel like most coaches are receptive to, um, helping out young coaches. 
And then the last thing I would say is don't be afraid to make mistakes. Um, great coaching, being a great coach or a great leader is, is difficult. It's hard. You're going to make a lot of mistakes and you'll learn from them if you have the right attitude. But if you start out by thinking, you know, everything, you know, you're going to find out right away if you're smart that you don't. Right. And, yeah. and when you find out you don't, what you don't know, that's when you really start learning. And, and there's a lot to be learned about how to, how to be a good leader and, and how to coach the game in the right way. So that's great advice. And I mean, just for not just coaching, but in general, what, and not to put you on the spot here, but what book, I mean, you mentioned grit, um, any book that you would just say, this is a must, you have to read this. Yeah, grit for sure. I think the one that really affected me lately was the culture code by Daniel Coyle. I think he's a, he's a great writer and it's all about, you know, modern leadership is really focused on, um, culture building and connections, um, with the people that you're leading, right? It's less about just kind of my position power and I'm the head coach. So you will do this, or I rule you out of fear and you jump just because you're scared. It's more about talking about effective leadership is, is really forging strong connections with the people that you're leading. And I think the culture code really gives some great examples. I found it to be really, really inspiring. And, um, I founded this book club at, uh, at UC Davis. So I, it's called the coaches book club. And, uh, the first book that we discussed was the culture code. I think it's just a really, really good book. That's awesome. And, you know, you see that culture building in the business world now more than ever creating yep. a culture that will want people to work and grind for you as a CEO or as yeah. a boss. It's exactly the same thing in, in the world of water polo. So, um, Dan, and I, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say one of the, uh, sorry to keep on going, but no, like, no, one, please. One of the most, inter- one of the most interesting things that I read in that book was like the number one key, key to the book states that the number one key to success. And apparently it's been psycho, uh, scientifically proven in, in forging a connection is, is the psychological safety of the people you're leading, right? That they feel safe in an environment where they can make mistakes, where they can express themselves and not be afraid of re, uh, repercussions, you know? So that was really eye opening to me. Like, and it makes sense, right? The people have to feel safe to express themselves, not to, you know, that they can do whatever they want, but they, they're safe to make mistakes basically, you know, and, and learn from them. I thought that was really, really neat. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's definitely something that I think every coach needs to like be conscious of if they want to be a championship level coach. I mean, I think players have to be trusting. They have to trust the person that's leading them in anything. And I mean, I mean, I'm going to definitely pick up that book uh, and, and at least the audio book. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> at least yeah. the audio book. So, Dan, I I, I really. I can't tell you how much I appreciate um, you coming on the podcast. I mean, I, I've been uh, someone who's admired your success for, um, from afar for a while, and, and I, I've seen you coach. I, I have a lot of respect for you. I think you're a really, really good coach and um, really know how to communicate the fundamentals um, in just such an articulate way. Um, something that I've wanted to add to a lot of these podcasts, is there any sort of social media or anything that people can reach out you know, maybe follow you. Is there any Twitter handle or Instagram or something that you'd want people to, um, to hit up and, and maybe ask you questions if they wanted? My, my Twitter is at D Layson. I'm not a, I'm not a great tweeter, but I, I do check it fairly regularly and I'm happy to answer any questions people have if they'd like to reach out. 
Awesome. Well, I'm not a big social media guy, but, but thank you for those kind words, Steve. I appreciate it. Thank you again for being on the program, and hopefully I could have you again um, on soon. My pleasure. Thank you. 